0: Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. If you have your Bible, um, and I hope that you do, turn to the book of Titus. We'll be looking at chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. As Hunter said, we are going to be going through verse by verse... Through the book of Titus, and it'll be both it'll be myself and Jonathan, and we'll be rotating and taking turns in preaching. Let me read God's word, read the passage for the night, and then I will pray and ask that God will speak with us tonight as we read and study his word. Paul, a servant of God. And an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect in their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the ability to come together, to sit under the preaching of your word, or to study your word, to read it, and to think deeply about your word. Father, I pray tonight you would give us special grace Lord, we come in from, many of us come in from a job, having worked all day, or Lord, there are many and multitudes of other distractions that aim for our mind's attention. But Father, in this moment, in this time, we want to consider your word. And Father, I pray that you would speak to us tonight, and Lord, that you would take the truths in this small introduction, and Lord, you would plant them deep within our hearts. And Lord, that you would give us a rock-solid assurance that grows in the godliness and Christian living. And Lord, that through this text, you will be faithful to conform us to the image of your Son. Father, we love you. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Before we dive into the text, it's helpful to consider the background and historical content. Starting a new book, we need to know what's behind it all. Well, um, it is a letter, and it is a letter from Paul, and Paul is writing to Titus. We don't know much about Paul and Titus' relationship, uh, nowhere near as much as we know about Timothy and Paul's relationship, but there are a couple of things we can surmise from Scripture. For, for one thing is we can surmise that they had a close friendship and a close uh, working relationship. They worked together in ministry so we see that in verse 4 of this book, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. And then in 2 Corinthians eight twenty three, it says, Paul writes, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. This letter makes up or is a part of what we call the pastoral letters. Paul, near the end of his life, at this point, historically, about A.D. 60, mid-60s or so, near the end of his life. um, After his first imprisonment, and for 2 Timothy, it was during his second imprisonment, Paul wrote three letters, two to Timothy and one to Titus during this time. So this is near the end of his life, and he is writing to two men that he has poured into and he has a close relationship with. He's equipping them for the next generation of, of ministers. So they all share common themes. Each of these letters, Titus as well, both have the aim of equipping, encouraging, and exhorting the recipient. Uh, furthermore, they also describe orderly worship. So not only do they focus on the pastor, but they focus on the congregation. And so, as I've already said, the genre of the book or of this book is a letter. It's not apocalyptic. You won't see any signs and symbols to decipher. It's not historical like the book of Acts. It doesn't provide a lot of detail into the life of Christ, so it's not quite a gospel, but it's a letter. And just like usual customs of his day, Paul uses those same customs in writing a letter. And so the book, this book here can be broken down like so. First, we see this introduction in verses one through four, and then the body of the letter, which starts in verse five, it goes all the way to chapter three, verse 11, deals with a multitude of issues, beginning with qualifications for elders in chapter one, verses five through nine. Then we see a command to avoid false teachers that crept up into the church at Crete, and chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. And then we see the exhortation to live out sound doctrine in chapter 2. And then we see other exhortations concerning gospel living in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And then finally, at the very end, Paul has some brief closing remarks and he ends his letter. So what is Paul's reasoning for sending this letter? Well, 1, 5 Says this, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is Paul's command and Paul's commission, as it were, to Titus. He left him there to put the churches in order. And so this letter is helping him and equipping him towards that aim, to help him put the churches in order. And so With that, Paul here seeks to instruct Titus in appointing and training new elders to rebuke the heretics that had come into and crept in with their false teaching and also to equip the saints to believe sound doctrine, which brings me to the general theme, this theme that runs throughout the letter as you read it, and I would encourage you as we go throughout the book of Titus, read it on your own and read through it multiple times. It's a short book. It can be read through uh, multiple times, even in one sitting. But as you read through it, you will see that Paul has this aim of exhorting both Timothy and the congregation to believe in sound doctrine so that it leads to godly living. And that's the general theme you see throughout this letter, is that sound doctrine leads to godly living. Paul would have Titus and the elders teach and proclaim this truth, and he would also have the believers live this truth out. So Paul commands to Titus in verse, or chapter 3, verse a. he says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Sound doctrine leads to godly living. Well, just like with any letter, there is an introduction. And the introductions are rather important. They're used to describe who to others who you are, they can be used to describe what you're doing, and they're used to describe uh, your motivations. So, for instance, hello, my name is Blake. I am a guitarist. Well, that's an introduction telling you who I am. It defines who I am. I play guitar. Hello, my name is Blake. I'm a guitarist, and I desire to be in a rock band one day. Well, that not only tells you who I am, that also tells you my goals, something that I'm aiming for, I'm aspiring to be. But then I could also say, hello, my name is Blake. Blake. I'm a guitarist who one day aspires to be a guitarist in a rock band because I grew up listening to rock and roll. That then adds a new element. It's a a motivation, a guiding principle that helps me to get through, or or rather it, it fuels my goal because of who I am. Does that make sense? And so... Although Paul and Titus are no strangers, I said that as if you didn't know me, Um, but Paul does something kind of similar here to his dear friend Titus. Paul here in this brief introduction provides uh, who he is, provides what his goals are, provides his motivation for obtaining those goals, and then finally he greets Titus. And it provides for us with the opportunity to examine how we are to define ourselves, to reassess our goals, to think hard about what motivates our goals, and then finally to consider how we are to greet one another in Christ. Paul here provides a wonderful paradigm for us to examine how we introduce ourselves to others. And what a fitting time to consider that truth being January, being the start of a new year. So let's dive into the text. First, we see Paul's introduction. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, first, Paul introduces himself in two different ways, but first, Paul describes himself as a servant of God. This word translated servant is, it would be better translated slave. That is the meaning of the word. The word has at its base, the idea of someone who is owned by someone else. Now, I say that with a warning. Oftentimes, when we think of the word slave, we think of it in our context. When I say the word slave, I don't know about you, I think of Civil War. I think about our American context. I think about those that were oppressed and victimized. Well, this word does not have that same connotation. It doesn't have those negative connotations. This cultural usage of this word did not necessarily contain the ideas of oppressed or victimized, but it just merely stressed the submission of someone underneath their master. And so Paul uses it here and elsewhere to explicitly describe the believer's whole submission to God. This this is stressed by the prepositional phrase of God. So notice, Paul is not just a servant. He is a servant of God. That stresses his master. In fact, culturally speaking, during this time, no one would just be called a slave. You You would not just call someone, oh, there is a slave. Rather, always accompanied with that term, would be the name of the master. It stresses the fact that the slave had no legal rights, but was always in submission to his or her master. And so Paul picks up that idea and uses it to stress that my master, I am a slave and my master is God himself. Paul completely belongs to God. Everything that he does from work to ministry to leisure is totally controlled by the will of God. To quote the writers of um, a a lexicon that I was reading, uh, they talk about this word and they say that Paul proclaims that he belongs exclusively and totally not to any emperor here below, but to the Lord of heaven and earth who owns all rights to him. More precisely, he defines himself, Paul defines himself, his existence, his mission, all his activities in terms of Christ, his master. This word is stressing the totality of God's lordship in the believer's life. Secondly, though, there is another term that Paul uses. Paul here defines himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. All of Paul's min- or I'm sorry, uh, this is a common word to describe someone who is sent out as a messenger. It's someone who is sent on mission or an emissary. And Paul uses this term to describe his apostolic ministry. And then there are three other ideas present with this term. First, the term apostle refers to someone who is set apart. It, it would be chosen from among all others and called by Christ. That's what Paul is saying. I was chosen among others, called by Christ and sent with a message. In Ephesians 1, in verse 1, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Paul does not go out in the name of people, but he goes out in the name of God because God has sent him out. Secondly, the apostle is sent by someone else. Very basic. And this stresses that Paul is not greater than the person who is sent, but he goes in the name of his master. Jesus teaches in John 13, in verse 16 and verse 20, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Truly, truly. So that stresses That Paul is not great, he is not saying that he is greater than Jesus. But then in verse 20 of John 13, Jesus teaches, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Paul goes in the name of Christ. And then third, such a role in God's plan throughout history requires that the apostle be invested with power and authority. So this word contains the, the idea that God has given Paul the power and the authority to proclaim his message. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read this, starting in verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Paul was set apart to proclaim Jesus' message. Paul was sent by Jesus himself and goes in the name of Jesus, or in the name of Jesus. And then finally, Paul had the same power and authority to proclaim that message. Paul boldly declared his identity in Christ. He was fully unashamed of Jesus by declaring to be his slave And his messenger. As Christians, or as Christians, we are ultimately defined by Christ. We are to live in total submission to him, his authority, eager and ready always to proclaim his message. By way of application, how do you introduce yourself? How do you define yourself? Are you defined by your job or your social status? Perhaps your age? I'm just a kid. Secondly, we look at Paul's goal. So still in verse 1, we see that Paul is a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. There are two goals that Paul presents here. So Paul is a servant and he is apostle. But Why? Paul's aim here first is he is striving for the sake of the faith of God's elect. The word elect here refers to that which is chosen or selected. Paul is referring to God's chosen people. And this idea of God choosing people really is a foundational idea throughout all Scripture. You can't read Scripture without seeing this idea it's present in the Old Testament where God chooses Israel as a nation. He chooses Israel among other nations. We see this in the New Testament where God chooses the church to be the recipient and the heir of, of his precious and great promises. And then finally, and, and we also see where God chooses individuals and it refers and calls attention to God's activity in salvation, that God is the initiator, the source, the implementer, and the, the guarantor of salvation. I'm not saying this. Paul's just not saying this, but Jesus taught this. In Matthew 22:14, 14, after the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. In John six thirty seven through 40, Jesus says this, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, who are those whom Jesus will raise? Well, in verse 44, he's explicit. Jesus explains, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In John 10, 27, 29, Jesus talks about his sheep and he says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And then perhaps most intimately, when Jesus prays to his father in John 17, he says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. But Paul and Jesus not, not only teach this truth, but other New Testament writers, Peter in 1 Peter 2.9 writes this, but you, talking to the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And John in Revelation 17.14 writes that they, that is the beast and those who are with them, They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So the Bible is clear. God chooses his people and he is in complete control over his plan of redemption. Now, I belabor that point because oftentimes this is a very misunderstood Doctrine is a misunderstood word. And I I quickly want to address one of the most common misunderstandings um, is that some people believe that, well, if God chooses people, then why share the gospel? It nullifies the Great Commission. After all, if God is in control of all salvation, then why does he need us? Well, contrary to popular misunderstanding, the doctrine of election does not do away with the Great Commission. In fact, Jesus taught that Jesus taught that, John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But at the same time, he also taught in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It was from his mouth that he actually gave the great commission. Jesus is no hypocrite. And furthermore, Paul, who teaches that God, um, he, he, he uses this phrase here, God's elect also taught in Romans 10, 13 and 17, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verse 17, he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So I want, to, I want to point back at Titus. Look at that phrase again, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul is seeking their faith. He knows that God is saving men and women, boys and girls, and he is proclaiming the gospel, looking for the faith of God's elect elect. Dear friends, event or election does not nullify evangelism. It emboldens it. That's Paul's goal. He is seeking the faith of the elect. God will save. God has a purpose and a plan behind the Great Commission. He is fulfilling it, and he will see it to the end. And at the end of the ages, we will praise God because ultimately, the ultimate determiner of, of that purpose being fulfilled will be God himself. It's his power and it's his strength and it's, 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 it's his divine wisdom that is carrying that plan to fruition. And praise God, you or, or y'all and I, along with Paul, we are tools in the craftsman's hand who is building up his church brick by brick to the praise of his glory and grace. And he is doing this through the proclamation of the gospel. He does this through the Great Commission. Now, it's helpful to remind ourselves that Paul is writing a letter, not a theological textbook. Um, there are many other questions that I did not discuss. Y'all know this. There are many particulars that this text does not address, but other passages, passages do. So the encouragement would be, let's study and, and dive deep into God's word and study all of the hard doctrines Next, Paul's goal is not only for the sake of faith of God's elect, but it's also for their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. So Paul is not just after converts in evangelism. Paul's goal is also to see those converts have a knowledge and grow in knowledge and holiness. So the word for knowledge here literally means full knowledge. It refers to a knowledge of the truth. That is a full knowledge of the truth. It aims at the mind. Paul is seeking for these converts to have a full knowledge of God's truth, fully studied in the word of God, knowing a correct and sound doctrine and knowing it fully. But this word does not just aim at the mind. It also aims at the heart. It aims at emotions. The word here, Paul uses the noun here, but the verb that that noun comes from is a verb that often refers to a knowledge that comes through experience, and particularly experiences between others, between friends, family. And without sounding too risque, it's often used to refer to the the intimate knowledge that only a husband and a wife would share. It aims at the heart. And so what Paul is getting at is that, Paul is describing a knowledge that is full of intellectual clarity and white-hot passion. It is factual to be sure, but it is never divorced of emotion. The inverse is also true. The emotion is always to be there, but it is restrained by God's word. If doctrine that you believe leads to a cold and empty heart, you do not have a full knowledge that leads to godliness. And if the emotion that you feel is not restrained by the clear teaching of God's word, then you do not have a full knowledge that leads to godliness. To illustrate this point real quickly, if I know everything about Chloe, yet I'm always stoic. I come home from work. I don't smile. Hey, Chloe, did you have a good day? I show no emotion. Happy anniversary, hon. I love you. Chloe would have a hard time believing that I really love her. In fact, she would look at me and say, Blake, you're clueless. I don't know what you're talking about. But then let's do the inverse. Imagine if I'm totally passionate and full of emotion towards Chloe, yet I forget everything. Can you imagine if I were to go out tonight and buy a box of chocolates and a dozen roses and then come to Chloe and say, Chloe, happy anniversary. Chloe, would look at me like I'm a fool because our anniversary is July 2nd. She would think I'm clueless. This knowledge Paul here is describing is full of not, full of factual information, full of sound doctrine, but also full of emotion. Dear friends, the knowledge that Paul is seeking for Titus and for his congregation and the knowledge that you and I are to have should be full of sound doctrine and white-hot passion that leads to godliness. And so these are Paul's goals, to strive after the faith of God's elect, and then their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And so by way of application, what is your aim in ministry? What is your aim here at Lucy? Are your goals the same as Paul's? Are you seeking after the faith? of those who do not know Christ and encourage them encouraging those who do know Christ to seek the full knowledge that leads to godliness thirdly we see Paul's motivation in verse, verses 2 and 3 we see in the hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our savior so why does Paul want to see the faith of God's elect and, the, and their knowledge of the truth? Paul, Paul's goal here is used to produce faith, knowledge, and godliness in the lives of God's people. And his motivation for this goal is rooted in the never-changing eternal purposes and plans of God. So in verse two, we see in the hope of eternal life, Paul's goals and his calling to be a slave and an apostle is in the hope of eternal life. Dear friends, the Christian life, everything about it is in the hope of eternal life. And that hope of eternal life is rooted in God's promises. From a secular perspective, people hope in things. They hope in a good marriage or a steady job or a decent retirement fund. People also hope in religion. They hope that... Uh, you know, my good deeds will weigh out the bad in the end. And, you know, I think God will smile at me and and I'll earn favor. But but the Christian, he sets his or her hope on God. Ephesians 2.12 says that at one time, we all were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope and without God. Dear friends, I remember that time in my life. But now that Christ is our peace, now that he is, we have been reconciled to God in salvation. All of our life is lived in hope. 1 Timothy 4.10 says this, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. So it's more than a, a fickle feeling or a rather hoping for the best. It's a rock solid assurance. Hebrews ten twenty three says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So we see God's faithfulness in our text with the next phrase. So in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies? This is straightforward and a very much foundational characteristic of who God is. And you see it in the Old Testament as well as here in the New Testament. But the next phrase is a bit more tricky. God who never lies promised before the ages began. The phrase literally in the Greek is before times eternal. Uh, This seems to refer to before the creation of the world and therefore the creation of time. That's a hard concept. So simply, Paul is stressing that God's promises are grounded in his eternal purposes. God's promises are grounded in his eternal purposes. We see this exact same phrase in 2 Timothy 1.9. And that reads, Who? the Lord saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began or literally before times eternal. This refers to God's purposes in salvation from before time. And so the next clause I'll come back to the second and tie it together, but let's move on to that next clause. It says this, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted. The phrase proper time, I I think it would be better translated his own time. Uh, I think the Holman Christian Standard opts for that translation. I think that's a good one Um, because it stresses that this is God's time. It's not it's not because of circumstance or because of things outside of God's control, but God is the one in control here and it's his time. And so Paul is writing here in God's proper time, what he deemed proper of it's his choosing. He manifested in his word his great and very precious promises through the preaching with which Paul has been entrusted. And so here it is to bring it all together. God's decrees and purposes and promises are eternal before time. God then reveals these great promises in history. We see this first with Genesis 3.15, the, the proto the the very first gospel where God promises to crush the serpent's head. We see where he promises to Abraham and thus reveals more of his redemptive history. Then we see God make promises to Moses and to David. And then finally, it ultimately leads up to God's final and ultimate message of salvation. Jesus himself, the word incarnate and the great message that Jesus proclaimed now was entrusted to Paul. And Paul is now preaching this very message. That's weighty. (laughs) Paul's motivation as a slave and apostle, apostle is the eternal purposes and promises of God. And the last cause of verse three, we see that it's the command of God, our savior. Once again, Paul is a slave and apostle and he does everything to the command of God, our savior. A, a brief note, notice here it says God, our savior. Well, in verse four, it says Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, our savior. Christ Jesus is God. Amen. And Paul taught that and believed that. What motivates you? As a Christian, are you motivated by the deep and wonderful truths of Scripture? Or do, we, do you just go through the motions of Christianity because you feel like you have to? Dear friends, let's be motivated by deep studies of God's word. Let's not settle for shallow, but seek to dive, to, to dive in to the word of God and to plumb its depths and to see the riches that God reveals. Fourth and finally, we see Paul's greeting. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So, so here we see, once again, Paul's affection for Titus. It's hard to see, and it's, this text is so weighty We almost forget it's a letter, but it is. This is the introduction. Paul is writing a letter to an individual and his name is Titus. And we see Paul's affection for this individual. Notice when he says, my true child, he does the same phrase with Timothy. In 1 Timothy, he says that Timothy is his true child. So Paul thought deeply of these people. He mentored them. He poured his life into them and he saw them even as his own sons. But there is a phrase that is not in Timothy that's here in Titus. And it's this, in a common faith. I don't necessarily know why it's not in Timothy, but it's here in Titus, but I'm so happy that it is. Because after thinking through uh, that word elect, and thinking through uh, promise before the ages began in this weighty doctrine, Paul reminds Titus that we have a common faith. Praise God. You and I have a common faith with the apostle Paul, even though he says things that are really hard to understand. It's a wonderful thing. And so Christianity is not radical, but it's ordinary. It's common. It is lived out in the common day-to-day life. And so regardless of your grasp on biblical doctrines, we all share in this common faith. And so finally, Paul ends his introduction with wishing grace and peace to Titus. This is interesting because in secular usage and, and from a Greek standpoint, it was customary to, at the, somewhere in your introduction, to give the customary greeting health. And it was the idea of wishing health on someone. Well, Paul and other New Testament writers take that idea and they turn it on its head. Instead of wishing health, as in, I just hope you get to feeling better or I hope you're doing well. Jesus, or Paul opts for grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. sounds a lot more rock solid. It's not just a hopeful, wishful thing, but Titus, it's almost, I was thinking through it in my studies, it's almost like a, a small encapsulated prayer as if Paul is praying to, or praying to God for Timothy on his behalf. God grant, or I'm saying Timothy, Titus, God grant Titus grace and peace. And so as we close, how do you greet others? Do you just hope that other brothers and sisters that here at Lucy are doing okay? Or do you pray and believe that God will grant them grace and peace? Dear friends, I, I, want to, I want to remember this when I see you on Sunday. So, and I want to wish y'all grace and peace. This is what Paul did. He did this to his brothers. I want to do it to you. Dear friends, we ought to do it to one another. And so finally, as we look at the sketch of Paul's life and ministry, let's remember that it is Christ, not Paul, who we should imitate. It's easy to look at this text and just say, well, Paul was a really good guy. He knew a lot. I want to be like Paul. But dear friends, let's remind ourselves that before Paul was a slave of God, Philippians 2 says that it is Christ who condescended from heaven and took the form of a servant, same Greek word, slave of God. He was completely obedient to the will of the Father, perfectly obeying him, even leading to the point of death. And before, before Paul was the apostle of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the true and greater apostle. Hebrews 3 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. The writer of Hebrews there is saying that Jesus is better than, and he is the true and greater apostle. The incarnate word came down and proclaimed the final and full revelation of God as the one sent from God himself. Praise God. Dear friends, you and I, we are slaves and apostles to God himself. We are bound to his will to perfectly submit And we are bound to his message to proclaim his gospel. Dear friends, here at Lucy, we are to seek out the faith of the elect. God is still saving men, women, boys, and girls. And praise God, I don't think he's done here at Lucy in this community. Dear friends, we, in 2018, we need to seek out the faith of those of whom God is saving. And the way we do that is to be obedient to the Great Commission, We need to share the gospel with our friends and coworkers. We need to share the gospel with our neighbors here in this community. But then also we need to strive after the knowledge that leads to godliness. We need to encourage each other and build each other up to attain not only a knowledge that is full of doctrine, but is also full of passion. Dear friends, this is what we need to attain. And living that knowledge out leads to right living, leads to godliness. And the motivating thrust for it all is God's word and his precious and great promises. So in 2018, let us strive to dig deeper and to study harder and to continually look towards Jesus himself as we run this race, of the Christian life. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can, as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, His death for you on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, Please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at